Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the little children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks, MK, for reading. Um, I'm going to start us with prayer. Pray with me. Father, may you open my mouth to speak your words of truth this morning. May we, all of us, find ourselves confronted by our sinfulness, called to repentance, and comforted by your saving grace for us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Well, when Pastor Eric first uh, asked me about um, preaching uh, for today, a few months back, he gave me a a number of options um, to choose from in terms of passages. And I knew right away which uh, passage I wanted to choose, this one, for today. Um, You see, our family just welcomed uh, a baby into our household in April, Tegan Estelle. Uh, She's our third daughter. And um, so I I knew that with the newborn in the home, uh, our lives were going to be geared around taking care of a baby uh, all summer. That's when been the focus for both Lori and I. And so um, I welcomed the chance uh, to reflect in this passage today, all summer long, really, on what the Gospels have to say about, and, and even more, what Jesus, what his own attitude was towards little children. Um, Our church uh, is in the midst of a a sermon series on um, Jesus' teachings in Matthew. We're calling it Jesus Unfiltered, right? We're looking at um, a lot lot of the passages that are are a little bit more difficult. Maybe they're difficult to understand. We don't don't know what to make of them. Or or what's worse, they're not difficult to understand. We know what they mean. We just don't want anything to do with them. Um, And so that's that's the focus of our sermon. But then you might ask me, Isaac, What's difficult about today's passage, right? I mean, Jesus loving the little kids, that's like a nice, you know, sentimental idea. Uh, last week, I, you know, I was holding the baby in the back in the, the cry room, and there's a, a nice little picture. I don't know if any of you have been back there and seen it, right? This Jesus with this little baby. It's this cute little picture. Um, and you think, okay, this is a nice sentimental uh, message for today. But, um, you know, as we, as we saw in the liturgy, I think there's actually things for us to be confronted by in this passage. And so it's, it's my job for uh, this morning to be able to help us all understand how this, too, is a hard word from Jesus and who can accept it. Well, uh, the way I, I was hoping to kind of get us into this passage was to actually show you a, a, a painting um, from um, 15, or 16th century Germany. I was going to put it on the screen. It's, it's this painting of the scene. Um, but, you know, we're still new getting back into the, um, the, the sanctuary, worshiping inside today. So we're still working out all the bugs, and we, I, we can't get it on the screen. Uh, one thing we're going to try to do is actually um, text a message each of you. You might be getting a text right now with a link to the, to the thing. I know not, not everybody's on the list of getting the message. So I'm going to do my best to describe what's in the painting. And it's not uh, the end of the world um, for you to be able to see it. But what I loved about this painting, <laughs> sorry, <clears throat> what I loved about this painting was it had all the key players from the scene. It's a short scene. Um, we've got Jesus. We've got babies and parents. 
and we've got disciples. Um, and what I think what I was first struck by when I was you know, just looking on Google Images, right, for this passage was the, the disciples. Um, if you can see it on your screen, they're up in the corner. It's like a black canvas. Um, Jesus, of course, in the middle. But on the, up the upper uh, left corner of the scene, there's these, the faces of the disciples. Um, and if you're looking at them, may, maybe you could ask yourself, how would you describe their emotion right now? Um, uh, and uh, if you can't see it, I'll, I'll give you some words that kind of characterize what, wh- how I think they're feeling right now. Maybe um, disgruntled. Uh, frustrated, annoyed, um, and and th- it's an important picture. And for me, it's 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 an opportunity to reflect on how are we responding to Jesus's compassion for the little children. And so, what I'm going to do is, uh, what I'd like to do for the course of the sermon is look at three emotions or three attitudes that we see in the scene. And the first emotion I want to talk about is the disciples' emotion. Um, we don't get too much in the text about them. It just says. And they rebuked the, the, the parents, the little kids. They rebuked them. Um, and I've, I've got a word for that attitude, and I'm going to use the word prejudice. So first we're going to look at the prejudice of the disciples. Um, now, the second, the second group of people in the picture, the second group of picture, people in the text um, are the babies, <laughs> the kids. Uh, and what I love about this picture is, you know, there's, there's tons of babies all throughout this picture. Um, and Jesus is, is holding one in his arm, and, and the baby's kind of like reaching up and kind of like trying to touch his, his face, you know, this, this, this baby. And he's got another baby on his back kind of like reaching around his neck. Um, and then what, the one thing that's really striking in the, in the picture is not only has he got this baby in his arm, baby on his back, he's like reaching out. You know, I get this picture of Jesus like, trying to extend out, find the next baby whom he can bless. He wants to bless them all. Uh, and so I want to ask us, you know, what, what's the emotion of, well, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the third emotion. First, it's the babies. Now, it's hard to read a baby's face. Uh, I've got a three-month-old. You know, she cries. I don't know, I don't know what she wants. So it's hard to read a baby's face. But in the picture, you also get the parents. Um, and so there's this mom kind of right beside Jesus. She's holding the baby up to him. And, and she's got this, like, pose of, uh, I would characterize it as, I mean, you could ask yourself, how, how do you think she's feeling? Expectancy, hope, longing, um, and I'm going to use that to characterize the second emotion or attitude, which is that of pleading, the pleading of the children. So we've got the prejudice of the disciples. We've got the pleading of the children. And then, as I said, Jesus, snack dab in the center of the scene, reaching out, not only blessing those who he has, but even trying to get more children to bless, more babies to bless. And so finally, we're going to be comforted with the third emotion, the third attitude, that is the pleasure of the Savior. So I've already sort of filled in your blanks right in, this, in the screen, but we're going to unpack all those together. Um, and um, yeah, uh, the, the importance of the second emotion, the pleading of the children, Jesus highlights for us why we need to think about the, their emotion, the pleading of the children, because he says, to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. So we need to be like them um, in their pleading. Um, the third emotion, the pleasure of the Savior. Um, uh, the text is, it, it's absolutely unambiguous, the orders, the mandates that Jesus gives. Uh, you see, he says, make way for the ch- children and don't hinder them from coming. I know the passage in your bulletin in the scriptures, it'll say like, leave them, like allow them, allow them to come. Um, but I, I use this word, make way for the children. I don't know if any of you have read this book to your kids, Make Way for the Ducklings. Uh, and you know, this Boston, you know, there's little ducks kind of trailing around Boston. And, and the police officer is kind of like, 
make way for the ducks, you know, and he holds up traffic, and, they, you know, the mom and her little ducklings kind of trail along, and I was thinking about that, this idea of Jesus saying, hey, let's, let's make way for the children. Let's not try to block them up or give barriers for them to be able to access the good things of God's kingdom. Let's make way for the children. Um, so, um, if there's an arc to this sermon, as I've said, it's that first we're to be confronted by our sinfulness, then we're to be called to confession, to become like little children, um, and finally we're to be comforted uh, by the saving grace of God. So, but before getting to that open access on offer through Jesus's good pleasure, we need to start by looking at those would-be gatekeepers, um, the disciples who are trying to slam the doors in the faces of the little children. Uh, they're effectively blocking them out from receiving Jesus' blessings. Let's talk about the prejudice of the disciples. As I said before, our passage is pretty terse on this. You just got one simple clause, but the disciples rebuked them. Rebuked. What's another word for that? Um, they spoke harshly to them. They, um, they scolded them. They spoke sternly to. They were disapproving of. It's definitely more than just simply like kind of shushing the kids and kind of like ushering them off to the side. They're, they're really like kind of saying no, putting up these barriers. Um, now, for the disciples, I guess it, it could be innocent enough, right? Um, you know, Jesus has a busy schedule of ministry. He's got to get to work on this stuff. He, he's got no time for this kid's stuff. Uh, perhaps this is how the disciples are reading the situation. But we're already starting to see here the prejudice of the disciples creeping in. You see, what's, what's important is the work of the kingdom. And this is adult work, something that grown-ups do. Kids don't really factor into it. Jesus' time is precious, so the disciples might be thinking. And his time has to be protected, prioritized. It's the disciples' job to filter out the less important interactions for Jesus, making sure that not a minute of Jesus' time is wasted. What's interesting, though, is that the evangelist Matthew gives us a long list of these kind of prejudiced rebukes doled out by the disciples and by others all throughout the gospel. Um, you see, back in Matthew 15, we've actually looked at a lot of these over the course of the summer. Back in Matthew 15, the disciples misinterpreted Jesus' silence when a foreign woman came to seek his help for her daughter. Um, and she, she was crying out, have mercy on me, son of David. Um, and Jesus ends up, when all is said and done, exclaiming that this woman's Gentile faith is actually better than that of the disciples. Then one chapter later in Matthew 16, a text that uh, Pastor Eric preached on last month, when Peter, remember, rebukes Jesus, Peter rebukes Jesus for uh, asserting his identity as a suffering Messiah. Remember what Jesus calls uh, this would-be leader among the disciples? Remember? Jesus calls Peter Satan. Um, because, uh, yeah, well, we'll get into that in a minute. But, um, and after our passage here in chapter 19, then we're going to see later that Matthew shows us another rebuke aimed at, again, at people who are crying out to Jesus for help. Uh, there's this, in this case, it's two blind men, and they're saying, have mercy on us, son of David. And we see the crowd rebuking them, telling them, no, you're not allowed to get to Jesus. But again, there we see Jesus saying, no, these are the very people that I have come to help. 
let them come to me. Let me come to them. Um, Ultimately, this narrative of prejudiced hindrances comes to a head in Jesus' strongest chapter of critique in chapter 23 where he's critiquing the Pharisees, his long-standing enemies. Um, And one of the things he says amid a number of critiques for their hypocrisy, he says that the Pharisees, not only are they failing to enter the kingdom themselves, but they're also blocking out those who are trying to enter. You see that connection? Disciples blocking out the children from Jesus' kingdom blessing. The Pharisees blocking out those who would enter the kingdom. So Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees for something that we see them doing when they tell Jesus to shush up the babies. Remember, he comes into Jerusalem and the babies are all crying out praises. Hosanna, what we just said in our liturgy. And the Pharisees say, Jesus, tell those kids to shut up. And he says, hey, if I, if, if I tell them to, to stop, even the stones will cry out. Um, uh, so, uh, I, and so we see uh, that insofar as the disciples are blocking out the little children from coming to Jesus, they're choosing in their prejudice to align themselves with Jesus' two biggest enemies, with the Pharisees who are blocking out those who try to enter the kingdom, and with Peter, Allah, Satan, who is thinking, who in thinking the things of, God, of man, not God, is trying to hold Jesus back from those whom he's trying to help. And so here is our first stumbling block for the morning. Uh, the first thing that we might be tempted to filter out from this passage. For those who uh, are believers, those within the church, are we using our position as insiders to effectively block out those who stand in need of receiving the blessings of the kingdom? In our prejudiced hearts, are we excluding others, deflecting them away from meeting the Savior whom they desperately need? Perhaps because we're thinking to ourselves, you know, the kingdom's not really for them. Uh, at least not until they grow up or, or clean up their act. Are there people who don't look like they fit within the makeup of our community and so we gently usher them away? Um, All with the good intention that we want to preserve, you know, the ministry of the church for the more important things. I think I'm going to switch over, right? Sorry about that. Turn on. Thanks, David. Sorry, I'm sure it's the scraggly beard. I'll just blame the baby. (laughs) uh, yeah, are there people that, that seem like they don't fit because they're not like us? And so we kind of like br- either brush them aside intentionally or even unintentionally, unwittingly, kind of set up barriers for people to be able to get to Jesus in, in, in our prejudice. Um, perhaps it's people who maybe don't vote like we do, and so we kind of scorn them or look down on them and don't, don't present a welcoming approach for those who would come want to come into the kingdom. Perhaps it's people who don't have the same degrees that we have, or maybe people who are from a broken family or from a rough background, are we setting up barriers in the way that we interact with them um, that don't welcome them in into the, the church, welcome them in to be able to experience the blessings of Jesus that, are, that he wants to reach out to them? Uh, this, this is something that we must repent of. Now, our church has just begun partnering with a refugee ministry, Um, And these kinds of ministries can be great ways of unblocking the pathway into the kingdom, making straight the way of these hurting individuals to meet Jesus. 
Another way to check ourselves against the kind of prejudice of the disciples is in how we treat and relate to maybe um, the transient or homeless members of our community. You know, just last Sunday, David was up here announcing we've got a meeting to be able to kind of reflect and be taught how best to interact with these maybe kind of what would have before been thought of as unwanted members of our communities and our societies. I mean, these are the people who need Jesus, and we need to be doing all that we can in order to help them meet Jesus rather than sort of interacting in ways that sort of brush them off or shush them aside. Well, in any of these situations, insofar as we mimic the disciples in their faulty gatekeeping, Jesus stands squarely against us. We've fallen prey to the prejudice of the disciples who themselves, in this case, chose to align with Jesus' enemies rather than with his own radical rescue mission. Lord, forgive us. We repent and help us to learn to follow your ways rather than our own rather than following in the ways of the world and the devil. Okay, that was, that was our first emotion, our first attitude in the passage, the prejudice of the disciples. Now let's turn our attention to the second emotion, the pleading of the children. If it's fair to say that the first attitude is one that must be cast off, the prejudice, well, then this second attitude is one that we must take up. If we're to join with Christ and participate in the kingdom that he's bringing in. You know, Jesus said in an earlier scene, we read it in our call to confession, that anyone wishing to enter the kingdom must turn and become as a little child. And again, here in our passage, we see Jesus affirm that the kingdom belongs to such as these. But how do we become such as these? I offer the idea of pleading as a key description of what it means to be such as the children whom Jesus chooses to bless. Indeed, whom no one can stop him from blessing. Um, As I said before, I've been helping my wife uh, and our daughters, of course, take care of our newborn baby girl for the first three months of her life. And if any of you have spent much time around a newborn, you can call to mind the kind of, how should I describe it, urgency? of a newborn's cry. Uh, I read uh, recently a humorous essay by Mark Twain in which he describes how everyone, even the strongest military general, drops everything once a baby cries and scrambles to meet whatever need the infant might have. I have to read it for you. It's just really funny. He's talking here to a room full of, of army men. He says, you soldiers all know that when that little fellow arrived at a family headquarters, you had to hand in your resignation. He took entire command. You became his lackey, his mere body servant, and you had to stand around, too. He was not a commander who made allowances for time, distance, weather, or anything else. You had to execute his order, whether it was possible or not. Um, and, and, and Lori and I both feel this, you know, when the baby's crying, it's like, we've just got to get this baby to stop crying. Let's help out. There's an urgency there. Now, you know, some people maybe would point to this demanding insistence of babies as an in instance of the inherent sinfulness of humanity, that the baby's imperial demand is indicative of its selfishness, inherited from Adam because of the fall. Now, I, I agree that we are all born in sin, but I view the baby's cry differently. I, I view our baby's cry differently. While I agree that, okay, that we're all born in sin, rather, I see this not as indicative of helplessness, the baby's cry, but rather as uh, not as indicative of selfishness, but rather as 
showing helplessness and dependence. So when I see our three-month-old daughter, Tegan, crying, rather than her being a symbol of that from which I should repent, I find her to be a picture of that toward which I should aspire. Now, the kind of childlike pleading before God which we must cultivate, it's not an immature attitude of insistence that God give us our own way. No, it's a cry for help. It's not a demand for this thing or that thing. Um, Eugene Peterson, uh, reflecting on Psalm 131, in which uh, the worshiper hushes and stills her soul before God like a weaned child before its mother. Well, Eugene Peterson describes such mature childlikeness. Say that again, mature childlikeness in this way. He says, The Christian is not like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper, after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment of his own wishes. So indeed, to be a child before God is to long for the Father's presence, not his stuff. Recall that in the story of the prodigal son, it's the older brother who whines about not getting to have the big party, while the father's response is, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It's similar to what the psalmist describes, that it's better to be a servant in the house of the Lord than to reign for a thousand days anywhere else. Um, just being with the father. That's the joy of the child. The relationship between father and child is the foundation from which, uh, the foundation which then serves as the conduit through which blessings arrive. Because there are blessings, but it has to be founded on the relationship between father and child. Uh, without taking joy in our relationship with the father, we'll never experience the good things that come from that heritage. As the South African pastor Andrew Murray puts it, the child who forsakes his father's house, finding no pleasure in the love, presence, and obedience of his father, and who still expects to get whatever he asks for, that child will surely be disappointed. Conversely, the child who finds the joy of his life in the conversation, will, honor, and love of the father, that child will find it is the father's joy to grant his request. Father-like giving is the divine response to childlike living. I love Andrew Murray on that. It's precisely in their situation, in our situation, as mere recipients of Christ's blessing that these children in our passage this morning become the standard for those who will go on to possess the kingdom. The biblical scholar George Ladd explains that the kingdom belongs to children because they are responsive because they receive the kingdom as a gift. Now, being simply on the receiving end of a gift tells us a lot about what it means to enter and to possess the kingdom. It situates everyone in God's kingdom in a position of absolute dependence. And children, even more poignantly, babies, little infants, 
This is, um, little infants are the perfect picture of such radical dependence. Completely vulnerable, abjectly needy. This is what it means to be a part of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. It's not a position of strength, of powerful jostling. Instead, it's the pathetic situation of the goo goo gaga. The being who can do precisely nothing on her own, but stands in need of help for everything. This is what you and I have to become if we are to experience the blessings of the kingdom. Now, the temptation is to try growing up in our own strength, to reach up for some level of independence, something which we can claim as our own. We want to get out from under the Father's house, right, and kind of start living our own life. We hate to have to go on asking for help, to have to be forever depending on some other individual for life and vitality. But such is the call of, this, of our Savior, and it's built into who God made us as humans. Elizabeth Elliot once characterized the human longing for independence as a form of atheistic rebellion against God. She says, Humanity for us, as for Christ, means both dependence and obedience. The unwillingness on the part of men and women to acknowledge their helpless dependence is a violation of our creatureliness. The unwillingness to be obedient is a violation of our humanity. Both are declarations of independence and are essentially atheistic. What would it look like to focus our efforts toward dependence and obedience rather than toward independence and strength? Well, this would be to grow into our rightful status as children, to become sons and daughters of the Father who live through his blessing rather than trying to locate our lives and our joys outside of his house. If we're looking to Jesus in order to see what true humanity involves, then what we find in him is precisely this childlike dependence on and obedience to his Father in heaven. Now, Matthew, among all the evangelists, the gospel writers, takes great pains to highlight for us all throughout his gospel narrative that Jesus lives out of the relationship that he enjoys as the Son of the Father, the Son of God. In fact, Matthew's Jesus refers to God as Father some 44 times, compared with four, only four in Mark and only 17 in Luke. 44 times Jesus is calling God Father in Matthew. Now, from the beginning of his ministry, remember in the baptism scene when Jesus comes out of the water and God says, you are my son. Today, uh, you know, I am well pleased with you. Um, and so it starts there and it goes all the way through and it ends. Remember the, the prayer in Gethsemane when Jesus is saying, not my will, but yours be done. And he's praying to his father in heaven. Um, Jesus displayed in all of these, he displayed for us that true humanity works itself out most fully when we live into our relationship as children of the Father. Now, one of my colleagues at the Tory Honors College where I teach at Biola, Fred Sanders, who's also a longtime mentor of mine, uh, he pointed, he's pointed out that Christians are often tempted to gloss over uh, the, um, the fact that Jesus was the Son in order to, to hurry on to get to the fact that he was God. Now, Fred says that this is a temptation that we must resist because Christ's sonship explains so much about what he did among us with his very sonship being the secret to his personal identity. If you want to know about Jesus, 
we should embrace who he is as the son. Now, as a person uh, and in the human identity that Christ took up through the incarnation, Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to be a child of God. And what he showed us was a life of trustful and steady obedience. One of my favorite authors, the Christian writer George MacDonald, never tired of describing Jesus as the perfectly obedient son of the Father. There's a quote in the reflections by him on this, but I'm, I'm going to read a few other ones. Because George MacDonald will even say some cra- kind of outlandish things like this. He'll say, um, the child is like Jesus, or rather, Jesus is like the child. Um, or again, he'll say things like, the Lord has the heart of a child. He'll call He'll out, outrightly call Jesus the, 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 child, the, the child God. It's kind, of, it's kind of crazy, but it focuses us on the fact that Jesus is the perfect child of the Father. Now, McDonald's notion about Christ as the perfect image of the child life um, is seconded by the theologian J.I. Packer, who reminds us that just as the knowledge of Christ's unique sonship controlled his living uh, all while on the earth, so Jesus insists that the knowledge of our adoptive sonship, your, yours and mine, those who are in Christ, the knowledge of our adoptive sonship must control our lives also. It must be the controlling thought, the normative category at every point of the believer's life. But again, our sense of pride chafes at this requirement to become small, to submit as children to the will of our Father. As Oswald Chambers says, we have to continually turn to God as children. And you know what? It's the one thing that we object to. There are wadges of obstinacy. I love this. There are wadges of obstinacy within us where our pride spits at the throne of God and says, I won't. We deify independence and willfulness and call them strength. But Jesus invites us into a different way, a life of radical trust in the Father who will meet our needs if only we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We must relearn to take delight in receiving blessings from the Father rather than aiming our joys at earned successes. We must learn to rest in him, happy and at home in the Father's house, delighted to carry out his will and always coming back to him for his sustaining power and satisfying presence. This is what it means to put on the attitude of pleading expressed by the parents and the children in our passage today. The pastor and author, Frederick Buchner, points out the offense that we might feel in this line of thought. And again, this is another quote in your reflections. Mostly because it leaves us with nothing to do. Uh, Buchner puts it this way, surely this is a hard saying. In the very effort of trying to become like children, if the effort can be so much as imagined, we put our goal still further out of reach. But it's precisely here, perhaps, that we come as near to the heart of the mystery as we're able. It's just when we realize that it is impossible by any effort of our own to make ourselves children and thus to enter the kingdom of heaven It's in that recognition that we become children. We are children, perhaps, at the very moment that we know that it is as children that God loves us. It is as children that God loves us. Not because we've deserved his love 
and not in spite of our understanding, not because we try and not because we recognize the futility of our trying, but simply because he has chosen to love us. We are children because he is our father. That's, that's all from Buchner. Well, again, as I reflect on this, to experience the kingdom, we are dependent upon God's love. And it's not a love that can be earned, enticed, or coerced. God bestows it freely. And all there is for us to do is to still and hush our souls in waiting for God's love, like the psalmist describes it as a weaned child with its mother. There's a perfect picture of this infant-like dependence on the blessing and grace of God in the church's long-standing tradition of baptizing babies. Lori and I often reflect on one particular phrase from the liturgy used when our two older daughters were baptized when, we were, when they were born over in Scotland. Um, it's, uh, the wording of the liturgy comforts the child with these words. It was for you, little one, that Jesus Christ came into the world. For you he died, and for you he conquered death. All this he did for you, little one, though you know nothing of it as yet. But we will continue to tell you this good news until you learn to treasure it as your own. What a striking image of our position as beggars before God's throne of grace. God's salvation reaching down for us even while we were little ones, while we knew nothing of it as yet. Every individual, young and old, who has experienced God's saving grace has received it freely not on the basis of anything that we might have to offer to God, but solely from our position of neediness and helplessness, just as a baby receives life-giving sustenance from its mother. In some ways, our look at that second emotion, the pleading of the children, has already kind of reached ahead into the final emotion that I want to look at from our scene, that is the pleasure of the Savior. We've already looked at how Jesus is himself the pleading child, who takes up the posture of trust before his Father in heaven, which then opens up space for him to extend that blessing of the kingdom to these other pleading children. But in closing, let's look at why it is, is his pleasure to bless us when we come to him with nothing to offer but our own helplessness. There's an important moment that Matthew relates for us earlier in Jesus' ministry. We don't have this in the bulletin, but it's from Matthew 11. You may know this passage. Um, in the passage, Jesus is pauses in the midst of his labors in order to offer up a thanksgiving prayer to, the, to his Father. And this is what he says in Matthew 11:25. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you've revealed them to the little babes. In saying this, Jesus opens up for us a window into the emotional heart of God. He's told us what God delights to do. Um, and rather than, so God's pleasure is to pour forth blessing and blessed insight on children, on babies, on infants, rather than on those who are more competent or mature. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there, but he then double downs on God's pleasure by offering a further extension along the same trajectory. He lets us know that only the Son has access to the Father, 
and only the, um, that only the Son has access to the Father and that no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So there's the choice, right? It's his pleasure to give it to whom he wants. And since the Father has given to the Son carte blanche uh, in terms of who else can gain special access to the, king, to the knowledge of God, Jesus doesn't hesitate to extend his invitation he doesn't target the successful. He doesn't target the competent or the able or the strong. Rather, and just like his father, Jesus' pleasure is to invite the helpless ones, the needy, the tired, the beat down. Remember the words, come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down, and I'll give you rest. Whereas the disciples saw their role as gatekeepers for the access to the kingdom, We've, and we saw how they used that power and that authority wrongfully in their prejudice. What we find here is that Jesus is actually the true gatekeeper of the kingdom. He can give access to whom he wants. Now, the prejudice of the disciples wasn't wrong because they were prejudging who could enter the kingdom. It was wrong because they were prejudging incorrectly. They were trying to reserve that access for just the the higher spheres. No kids, right? Just the grown-ups, just the adults, just the mature, the competent. Well, Jesus, too, exercises a level of judgment. He makes decisions about who can come and who can enter the kingdom. But Jesus refuses to let in those who are self-sufficient. And instead... He chooses to welcome the little and the helpless ones. His pleasure is that the children and those like children would be the ones to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. These are the ones to whom he opens up the wonders of seeing and knowing the Father. It's interesting because while we might see this as perhaps unfair of Jesus, why should he exclude people just because they're wise and they're strong? Well, it actually matches up with what the very people themselves want. You see, the strong and the self-sufficient are, in fact, going to be the first ones to spurn the offered help of the Father. They, they're going to opt, rather, to try and do it themselves. It's the weak ones and the small ones whom Jesus delights to bless. These are the ones who actually take Jesus up on his offer to reveal the Father. They're the little ones who are willing to ask, and so they receive. They're the little ones who are willing to seek, and so they find. They look to God as their good father, who won't give them a stone when they ask him for bread, but will supply all their needs from his endless storehouse of provision, and may we be the same, looking to our father. It's only those who refuse to take up the humble posture of dependence who are left on the outside, almost happy, or at least sullenly resolute in their willful and rebellious sin. As Milton's Satan declares, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Uh, I was talking about this with my wife, Lori, in a similar vein. C.S. Lewis has this quote where um, he says, you know, there's really only two kinds of people in the world. There's those who say to God, thy will be done, and then there's those to whom God says, your will be done. And there's just the two. And the only thing I would add to it is that the first group of people who are saying to God, your will be done, these are the ones who enter into their relationship as children of the Father. They want his will because he's their good father. And may we be the same. 
But what the world and Satan himself are too blind to see is that the highest human attainment is to enter into our status as sons and daughters of God, a position in which submission to the Father opens up the highest form of dignity. As the prayer book reminds us, though the world can't understand it, it is service to God that is perfect freedom. Jesus made it clear that it was his mission all along to draw men and women and children into this most intimate relationship with God in which he is their father, and they, as our own Westminster Confession describes it, enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God being pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father. At times, this meant for Jesus going out of his way to bless the lepers, the pariahs of society. At other times, it was to bless prostitutes, while here it's the children. What unites them all is that these people had nothing to bring. They were characteristically insufficient, and so Jesus was pleased to provide their sufficiency. In their weakness, he became their strength. Coming as children, their pathway to maturity ran through God's Son, and so must ours as well. I want to close with an image that I got from G.K. Chesterton in his little book, Orthodoxy, though it's one that I think a lot of you will, will, will know about, you'll be familiar with. Remember in the, the book, or maybe you've seen the movie, Alice in Wonderland? There's that opening scene, right, where um, she, she falls down the rabbit hole, but, but then she's got that little bottle, right, and it says, drink me. And of course she drinks it because it says, drink me. Um, she drinks it, right? And what does it do? It shrinks her down really small. And then there's this whole battle where she has to like, eat something to get bigger and smaller. But the thing that's important is it shrinks her, and then she sees the little tiny door that she couldn't get through when she was bigger. It's only when she was shrunk that she can get in the door. And what's in the door? What's well, Wonderland, right? Alice in Wonderland. Um, and so here's the really astute, uh, witty observation of G.K. Chesterton. He says, unless Alice becomes small, she cannot be Alice in Wonderland. And I thought, isn't that a great picture for us? Unless we become small, we cannot experience the wonders of the kingdom. We can't get in. We're just too big. Um, and for those of you maybe who don't want to go Disney but want to go for maybe a Spielberg route, remember I was thinking of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and he's, he's, he's trying to get to the grail, right? And he's got to remember there's one thing where he has to do. He has to, he has to like, bow down because the thing's going to chop off his head. Remember, he's got to, like, go down. So this idea of, like, you, you have to stoop to enter. And that's the kingdom. You have to get small if you're going to get in. Um, and once in, man, the wonders that you will experience while there. Well, if nothing else, all those who seek to follow Jesus, both big and small, young and old, we can all embrace the wonderful words of the famous Sunday school song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Because Jesus shows us in our passage today that the theology expressed in that song is absolutely true. Remember the second line of the song? Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Now, it's an amazing and wonderful truth that the kingdom belongs to the little ones. But how much more wonderful that the little ones belong to the king. Now, until strength, strength indeed is needed to get into the kingdom. But none of our strength will do it. We've been watching the Olympics, right? There's so many strong gymnasts and strong athletes it doesn't matter if you're the strongest person in the world. You can't get into the kingdom. There's only one person that has the strength to get in the kingdom, and that is Jesus. And so what do we need to do? We need to come to him in our weakness 
and let his strength be our own until we come to our Savior as little ones, as those who know our weakness. And don't try to cover it up or hide it. It's only then that we can trade in our weakness for his strength. Until we, like Luther, recognize our place as beggars before God. But what's more, as beggars who have been brought in to the feast and given a place in God's family at his table, only then will we experience the blessings of the kingdom. Only then when we join our brother Jesus in delighting in the presence and will of our heavenly father, will we be satisfied in the house of God forever? Would you pray with me? Our father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who delights to save. And in saving us, you bring us into your family as sons and daughters. May we enter into this glorious heritage that your son Jesus has opened up for us, not trying to assert our own strength or will, but instead delighting in your will and in your presence, all through the strong blessing that Jesus happily extends out to all the little ones, to the glory of the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Amen.